I was having this conversation with one of my authors the other day. We both come from places where there are very few books that I think reflect Newfoundland culture in an authentic mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. and not sort of a stereotyped way. And he was from the prairies and was sort of saying the same thing. There's so many stereotypes about the flyover states and things like that. Like people don't read, people don't write, people aren't educated. Like, well, if every single book you pick up makes you feel alienated, you're not going to read. And if you're not reading, you're not going to grow up to write those stories. But right. that doesn't mean the stories aren't there. That doesn't mean the audiences aren't hungry for them. It means that we're actively telling them this is not for you. Hey there, welcome to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career. Thank you so much for joining me for these meaningful conversations with literary agents where you can learn about their manuscript wish list, how they agent, and many other invaluable publishing insights. I'm Abigail Perry, the host of Lit Match and a book coach and certified developmental editor who also worked as an editorial intern at a literary agency. I'm always on the hunt for noteworthy literary agents who are making big differences in the world by advocating for authors and making their publishing dreams come true. I can't wait to share today's guest with you. This literary agent has such a unique experience before and presently in the literary agent role. Plus, they're such a fun person to talk to. Their name is Emmy Nordstrom Higdon, and they are a literary agent at Westwood Creative Artists. Emmy holds a PhD in justice-oriented social work with a focus on critical animal studies from McMaster University with additional peer-reviewed publications in public health and psychology. They even studied professional circus arts in a former life, but fell in love with the publishing industry while working at another story. Emmy brings a deep appreciation and unique perspective to their work. They are a member of the planning team for FOLD, the Festival of Literary Diversity. Emmy is a queer, trans, non-binary colonizer originally from Newfoundland and lives with their partner, a deaf Dalmatian, and two formerly feral Maine Coon cats. Emmy primarily represents authors of upmarket fiction and narrative nonfiction across age ranges. They specialize in identity-driven stories based on lived experiences, particularly from LGBTQ2S+, and disabled or chronically ill authors. They prioritize queries from trans and or non-binary, Black and or BIPOC, and or disabled authors. Their clients can be found on social media as the hashtag Spine Squad. It is my great honor to bring you Emmy Nordstrom Higdon. Thank you, everyone, for joining me today. I am thrilled to welcome this literary agent to the conversation. They are amazing. They have such an interesting background, which I am really excited to talk about because it is not the conventional background of coming into a literary agent role. They created books beyond binaries. And Emmy is a member of the planning team for the Festival of Literary Diversity, which is super interesting. Emmy, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to have an incredible conversation and I'm so excited to get into it. I'm so glad to talk with you. Awesome. So Emmy, I mentioned that you have an unconventional way of coming into the literary agent role. Before we get into it, can you introduce yourself and tell us about your experience and what drew you to the literary agent career? Yeah, absolutely. You're right. I didn't take the traditional path into publishing. I always struggle with how far back to go because I feel like everybody sort of has their book origin story. But in terms of coming into the industry, I was actually finishing up a PhD 
in social work. And I had sort of decided that the teaching track, the tenure world was probably not for me. So I had been working in research for about four or five years, public health research mostly. And I was trying to think of different roles, different careers that I could see myself in where those skills that I had from the research world would be transferable. At the time, I was doing a lot of data management and I had a background in frontline social work and emergency housing and mental health. I started working at an indie bookstore in Toronto during my PhD where I was just for extra money and getting out of the house because I had been working from home for years and years. I loved it. It really felt like coming home in a lot of ways because I had always been really involved in reading and book clubs and stuff like that growing up. When I started thinking about which way to pivot in terms of my career, I started thinking about publishing because the bookstore was like the happiest I had ever been. But it's extremely hard on your body working in a bookstore. It's extremely draining. As anyone who works retail will know, like being on your feet seven or eight hours a day is not easy, but especially for bookstores, there's a lot of offsite events involved in book selling. And so lots of lifting 35, 40 pound boxes of books and 12, 13 hour days driving cargo vans out of the city, out to convention centers, things like that. So I was sort of like, okay, I'm not sure that this is something I can see myself doing like later adult years. So I actually started listening to podcasts and things like that about different jobs in publishing and agenting just felt like a natural fit to me. I was like, oh, this is something that I can see. I live my life in Excel. I use a lot of those same kind of skills. And also having spent years reading and recommending books to people for different contexts and things like that, I thought basically the same skill because trying to learn what editors are looking for is a lot like knowing what your customers are looking for when you're working in a bookstore. So yeah, I started out with an internship at the Rights Factory here in Toronto. They were incredibly generous to let somebody who has never had any experience in publishing at all kind of come in and learn the ropes. They were so good to me. And then not too long after I got an offer to join the team at Westwood and it's been like a dream job. So I hope to stay with them for a really, really long time. I have incredible mentors and support. So yeah, I've been really, really lucky in this industry so far. Yeah, that's amazing. Emmy works for Westwood Creative Artists. <laughs> yeah, our whole team is kind of spread out. We have agents all over Ontario and then a couple out on the West Coast as well. But we actually have a brick and mortar office and it's in downtown Toronto, right in the backyard of the Robarts Library at U of T. Oh, that's fun. Right near our library. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, it's nice to be kind of in like a bookish feeling neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Do you go in and out of the office or do you do mostly remote work? I do mostly remote work. Prior to the pandemic, I was also 90% remote. So it hasn't been a huge change for me personally, but for the agency, it's been a huge change. Most people at Westwood were working 100% in the office before the pandemic started. So mm -hmm. since COVID, because so many people started working remote and hybrid, we've actually downsized our office. So we're sharing our space with another literary organization now. Oh, cool. And we're doing kind of like a hotel desk system at times when it's safe. If we have a meeting or something like that, we can book time to go in. I typically work from home because I have a rambunctious dog who <laughs> sort of runs my life, but it's nice to be able to drop into the office when it makes sense to. Yeah. What kind of dog do you have? Uh, he's a Dalmatian, a deaf Dalmatian puppy. Yeah. <laughs> Very. Yeah. He lives up to the sport breed reputation and he's also super protective, grumpy, emotional creature. So. <laughs> you have coon cats too. I do. Okay. Two formerly feral mean coon cats. One of them yeah. might make an appearance, but he's been sleeping pretty hard this morning. I'll go bugs. Sometimes he'll just plops on top of me while I'm doing calls and stuff. <laughs> and they're huge, right? Aren't they're cats? pretty big. Yeah. yeah. Our yeah. bigger one is close to 20 pounds. And then we have a, our girl is like a little bit smaller she's a little bit smaller bone but yeah, they're both big and fluffy and 
personalities. Too. So you have the Dalmatian who works well with the coon cats. It all works okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's good that they're big and strong because they can definitely defend themselves. Yeah. So <laughs> we all know who really runs the house. I'll put it yeah. that way. <laughs> That's how yeah. it goes. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. You mentioned you worked at the bookstore for a while. That's really interesting. Being on the other side of someone who might be selecting or recommending the books, and I've always told people never underestimate your booksellers. Oh my gosh. If you need a wealth of knowledge, so much, so much knowledge. They're amazing. Like if you go with librarians and booksellers, they know what's up. If you are looking for the recommendations, when you were trying to starting to switch gears, did you find that there were any differences between working more from the bookseller's perspective to working as literary agents perspective? Honestly, I miss it a lot because I really found that as a bookseller, it was so easy to stay on top of everything. You know, every book that comes out months before it comes out, right? Because your sales reps and stuff are pitching them to you. I was really lucky to work at a store that was super progressive and really interested in diverse literature, like way before that was kind of a popular wave. So yeah, there's nothing more fun than like Tuesday morning getting like crack open the new release books that are fresh on the shelves and getting to read them before everybody else does is always a lot of fun. And I do find now that I'm agenting full-time, it's a lot more work to stay on top of what's new, what's coming out, and also what readers are excited about. You know, sometimes it's not what you would expect. I remember Sally Rooney was such a wake-up call for me as a bookseller. I remember when her first books started coming out and people were just buying them in stacks. They were so mm-hmm. obsessed. They were sleepers. We didn't know that that was coming as booksellers. It was really interesting. But now I find I get a lot of my information about trends and about what people are really excited about online. Like I spend mm-hmm. a lot of time on Twitter and things like that, Bookstagram. But it's not the same as having the firsthand conversations with people when they come in and they're just clutching a book that they love or really hungry to get the next thing that they're excited about. So that's actually like pretty challenging. Obviously, as an agent, you have to be three steps ahead of that as well. So we're signing book deals right now into 2024. You can't really pick what you're going to represent or what you're going to pitch based on what people are excited about today. You need to be thinking about what's going to be happening three years Mm -hmm. from now or four years from now. I do a lot of reading of trade publications and I listen to a lot of podcasts and even some businessy overall cultural trends media because trying to stay on top of the collective consciousness of our culture is thinking about is tricky. It's really a lot of work and to find the balance between what you're interested in and passionate about and what seems to be coming up through the cultural awareness of the day is the tricky balance to strike. And I think everybody does their best, you know. I think that's a really amazing insight and point that you're making. You have one point part of your career where it's celebrating the books that are coming out. Yeah, absolutely. And then a whole nother part where you're saying it's about predictions, right? Informative predictions in the sense of doing that and trying to figure out like, what do you want to be going for? And I think about writers who are always nervous about not writing in the trends. And often there's the advice of don't write in the trends. But then it's also kind of like you also as an agent need to be knowing what you're looking for and what you're interested in and what you're going for. So that brings us into this insight of the main reason why we're having this conversation today, what's on your manuscript wish list? What are the stories that you're looking for right now? That's always evolving for all of us. I know that it's so tough as a writer. I mean, it's tough as an agent too. So much of my job is having phone calls and even just email exchanges day to day or text message exchanges, whatever 
hearing what editors are looking for and what kinds of things are on their radar. And it can change, you know, in the blink of an eye, something big happens in the news or something big happens in the world. And of course, what people are looking for today might not be what they want tomorrow. And there's no way to predict that. It's really, really difficult because it might not even be, I mean, it might be as simple as something happening in their personal life that mm-hmm. affects their reading taste or what they're able to work on even. I usually use the example of, as you've pointed out, my pets are like a giant part of my life. And I love reading about animals. I've studied animals for a really long time. That's always going to be a big part of my passions and my interests. But I had a dog who passed away suddenly at the end of September. And for a month, anything that was about animals or that was about grief or anything like that, I was a mess. And it was hard because I represent a lot of edgy, spooky books too. And so I was finding that kind of stuff really hard to get into. I just really wanted things that were like fluffy and happy. So sometimes it's as simple as the sort of a collective mood that can affect what people are looking for. But I, I would say I do have some big staples that are always on my list. And actually... This conversation is so well-timed because I have a manuscript wish list, a public one that I maintain on the manuscriptwishlist.com page. And I went through it at the end of last year and really refreshed it and revamped it because what I'm looking for is constantly evolving. And it's so hard to articulate your taste sometimes mm-hmm. because there's a difference between what you like to read versus what you're able to represent, all having to do with those trends and the responses that you get from editors and also your agency as well does play kind of a role in that. For example, at Westwood, we have a long history and heritage in literary fiction, like really strong, thought-provoking, very intellectual and forward-thinking, progressive literary fiction is really a staple at Westwood. And so that's not something I really represented before I came to Westwood, but it is something that I do find in my query inboxes now. And it's something that I do value as the path that's been paved for me. There's Mm -hmm. always that influence. And I was actually just explaining to a querying author this morning that it does always play a role in how I respond to queries, the role that my agency plays in my life. Because when I send out submissions, it's not like when an author is sending a submission to a publisher and they're just representing themselves. I send out a submission. I have to be sure that I feel good about it representing the author and their goals and their vision for their career. But also all of my authors are associated with me. So it has to be something that I'm proud of for all of us. And even more than that, if it's something that my agency wouldn't approve of or that wouldn't uphold the standard that my agency sets for our submissions, that doesn't work either. It means Mm. that I'm so picky sometimes and I'm a very hands-on agent. I do editorial with all of my authors and I think that sometimes that can be hard because there is a bar that is set by the agency overall as to like what we're able to send out to editors um, and what they expect from us when they see like our agency name in their inbox. But in terms of what I represent personally, I am really, really lucky at Westwood that they give me a lot of free reign to kind of pick what I'm interested in. Like most of the agents at Westwood, I am kind of a generalist in the sense that I love to read books across age ranges and categories. So I represent everything from picture books and illustrators all the way up through adult serious nonfiction. So the full spectrum. But I would say that when I'm looking for things for my list, it's more about political sensibility and literary sensibility than it is about a specific theme or niche in the publishing industry. I do tend to focus on identity-driven stories. I would say I'm pretty politically progressive. That's not to say that everything I represent is super, super lefty, but for the most part, that's the direction that I lean. So mm-hmm. I don't tend to represent a lot of really conservative viewpoints. Big concepts are something that makes me really excited, really hooky books that 
kind of have like a big story to tell. As a reader, it tears me up because I love quiet stories. I read a lot of quiet stories in my downtime, but it's been really tough the last few years. Editors especially are really looking for things that I think because people have so much going on in their lives, you know, the book really has to be immersive and pull you in. So when I get queries like that, it really makes me excited because I know that that's what people are looking for these days. I don't tend to do super, super commercial or super, super literary. I tend to be somewhere in the middle in that book clubby upmarket kind of space. And I do always refer back to this story. I'll tell you the story from when I'm talking to editors from my book selling days, because I think about it all the time that like we used to have a lot of regular customers who were really, really awesome. And oftentimes they would come in around, especially the holidays where they'd be looking for a book either for themselves or for a family member who maybe didn't read as much as they do. And they would be asking for stories that were a justice oriented story. We were a little independent story. We had a lot of really indie press and really left focused politically thought provoking, really heavy kind of stuff. They would be looking for things for people that would push their thinking in a particular direction or open their mind a little bit to something new that they hadn't thought about before, but that was still plot character driven, really immersive storytelling so that it wouldn't feel like they were sitting down to read something that was pedantic or something that was lecturing them or they were sitting down to read a school book. You know, they wanted something that still felt like really fun to read. I want to feel like I'm sitting down and having a cool, fun experience, but still that it's going to change something in my mind. I think that that's like really the magic that books have is that readers get to sit down and like you're letting a stranger spend sometimes months in your mind. That's not a small deal, <laughs> especially with the media that we have available to us today. I'm always thinking about that reader. My mom is one of those people that reads like three, four books a year. You know, mm -hmm. you want those books to be really good. You yeah. want them to be entertaining. She's not like a 200 book a year person. So right. she's going to Costco and she's buying something that's going to be really, really enjoyable to read because that's her 10 minutes before bed every night. You yeah. know, I want that to feel like somebody is talking down to you or, you know, you're being beaten over the head with an idea that you don't understand or that you don't like. But I do like books that help people to see the world differently. When they can straddle that line, that's a sweet spot for me. You're speaking to everything <laughs> that I look for in stories. So personally, awesome. I'm thinking, yes, yes, that's exactly what I, <laughs> what I want to see more in the world, you know. You've mentioned so many of these great topics and this balance of we want to be growing. We want to see new perspectives. We want to experience these lessons that are going to help us grow as human beings and culture and society and also have some fun in the process. Totally. Are there any stories either that are favorites of yours for your whole life or stories of late that you've read that are good comparable titles that are hitting all of these boxes that you're wanting to represent in your own stories? I have a list on my manuscript wish list that's like the books that I'd like the next of, you know, mm -hmm. but I honestly don't get to talk about my favorite books very much. And that's yeah. something that like, I mean, I could do that all day. But yeah, you mentioned that I help organize the Fold Festival, which I do. Mm -hmm. And it's like a really bright spot in my literary life. It's such a fun festival. And it's something that always makes me discover something new through the fold. Like no matter how much reading I, I can read all day, every day for work, for pleasure, whatever. And I get to the fold and there's always something that blows me out of the water. Can you uh, just talk I a little quick about what the fold is? For sure. It's a literary festival. It's not that different from any other festival in the sense that there's like panels and workshops and that kind of stuff. People register. We offer lots of scholarships for that. There's a children's version in the fall and then there's an adult version in the spring. Although so there's elements of both, I would say, mm -hmm. having gone to both for years and years. But the focus of the festival is literary diversity. So it was founded by two Black women who really weren't seeing themselves or their interests reflected in other local festivals. And I would say it's really grown from there. 
the phrase I always like to use is people who are traditionally underrepresented in mm-hmm. publishing. So mm-hmm. whether that's because of their race or because of their age or mm-hmm. because of their ability level, whatever it is, there's loads of reasons why those books have a harder time getting published and celebrated. And that's a whole other conversation. But The Fold tries to lift up those voices that are maybe have been marginalized traditionally and don't deserve that. There are a lot of really amazing books that uh, I think don't always get the recognition that they deserve. So in some cases, that's because they're published by smaller presses or self-published too. We do a lot of work with the smaller publishers in Canada and in the US as well. And then we also do books that are more popular in audio for whatever reason. So there's all kinds of different approaches that we take. But something that I really love is that the festival is constantly pushing to be like, what haven't we looked at before? What Mm -hmm. isn't out there getting seen by readers? And so even for someone like me, who's wrapped up in book culture, most of the time, there's always stuff that I miss. There's always gaps in our knowledge. And it's such a fun festival for that reason. I think there's always some author who I've never heard of that I come out of that festival wanting to read every word they've ever written. It's a super fun festival. And we were having a planning meeting the other day talking about like, you know, this year's festival is coming up in May. We were talking about what we've been reading lately, favorite Mm -hmm. books, all of that kind of stuff. And it just made me think about like all of these favorites that I have that I could just disappear in. And I have such a struggle with authors who I really, really fall in love with. And then I run out of books of theirs to read. I'm sure that every reader has had this moment where you're like, wait, but that's everything you've ever written. Like, that's not okay with me, (laughs) you know? And so I try to always leave one book by an author, unless I've only written one. But like, if they have two or three, I feel like I'm always putting off reading the newest one because I don't want to run out. (laughs) So this is the emotional turmoil that I have as a reader. But we were talking about Mona Awad, who is a Canadian author who mm-hmm. wrote a book called Bunny that we featured at The Fold a couple of years ago that I, I only read it this year because her new book is coming out soon. So I was like, OK, I've heard lots of good things about this. I know I'm going to enjoy it, but I totally underestimated how much I enjoyed it. It's such a weird book. I love it so much. It's bizarre. And I love I do joke, but it's really real, actually, that like I tell authors, if your query is the one that's going to show up in my inbox and it's going to make me be like, what the heck is this in a positive way, you can almost guarantee that I'm going to read it first and that I'm going to read it quickly because I love things that just confuse me. (laughs) I don't even know how else to put that. That's so interesting because these are what you talked about, how you're more hands-on as an agent. Yeah. Do you find these ones that are more confusing or more weird, however you're going to say it, or you know, more unique in that way of structure, character development, whatever it's going to be, are those harder to edit or give advice on? Because I feel like some agents might find that difficult to work with, but you're craving it, you know? Oh, I love it. That's my favorite. I think that there's two different approaches. One of the first things I always ask any author that's querying me who I'm interested in working with in a serious way, I always ask them what their goals are. And I always ask them what they're looking for in an agent. That's going to be my first Spoiler alert, but if I ever ask you those questions, it's a good sign because that's going to be the first thing I ask anyone that I really am enjoying their writing. I think for me, fit is so important. There are so many different ways to approach submission. So if I get a book that's really super wacky, I still have to sort of see where I would be able to sell it. So whether it's evaluating in my mind whether the network of editors that I personally have, because it's different for every agent, I'm always sort of thinking, are the people I know the ones that are going to know how to sell this? Are they going to be the right editor for this? Who can I think of off the top of my head that I could send this to today? Be like, Mm -hmm. have you seen this super weird book? Would you love it? (laughs) You know? And so I think that sometimes books are better suited for bigger presses or for small presses. And so I always want to have 
that conversation with the author because also some authors are more interested in working with corporate publishers and some Mm -hmm. aren't. And that's something that I'm pretty open to as an agent, as long as the author and I are on the same page about our strategy. If it's super, super weird in a way that I think is very not commercial, that's a conversation that I feel we have to have. Would you want to commercialize this or not? Do you want this to be palatable to somebody at Penguin Random House? Or are you good going to a smaller indie press and seeing how we do there and sort of talking out what the implications of that might be down the line too for their career? In general, I love working with them. And I think you can commercialize a book that's super bizarre. I don't think it has to follow necessarily traditional structure rules or anything Mm -hmm. like that. But Mm -hmm. I think you kind of have to weigh the risks that you're taking with the path you hope to have as an author in your career. It's a conversation that I have with all of my authors. Where do we go from here? You know, like, okay, now we've decided to work together. You have this awesome book. Now what? (laughs) And that looks different for everybody. The books that I love that are super bizarre are things like Satellite Love was the one that I came across this year. That was the weirdest one. It's about a girl who literally falls in love with a space satellite. No joke. That's the actual concept. And it's an amazing book. But if that showed up in my query inbox, that would definitely get my attention. It's not one I see every day. I had to turn down one earlier this year because it was way too short and the author didn't know how to make it longer. Novellas are something that are really hard to publish. And it was, the protagonist was a literal mammoth from the Stone Age, like a teenage mammoth. And I was like, this is fascinating. I am open to super weird. I think that you just sort of have to decide where you're going to go with that. This is my cat who just woke up, who is now (laughs) He's blinking because he's only like half awake. He's just going to flop into my lap, I think, while we're talking. All animal guests. There he is. Of course, welcome on the podcast. (laughs) He's making me like, he's confusing my digital background into being like, what shape are you? Maybe I can lay down. He's like, maybe, maybe we can. But yeah, Mona is one of my favorite authors. I love her books. I love Helen Oyeyemi. I cannot get enough of her books. Gingerbread is one of my favorite books of all time. Kweke Mezi also writes super bizarre things, but like beautiful, life-changing books. Gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Those are hard to find. And not all books have to be that for sure. But in terms of what I love as a reader, those are some of my favorites. And some of them write across age categories too, although the three of them are more... I would say more in the adult space, but Mm -hmm. not exclusively. I think Uh, that's another thing that's fascinating about your wish list because you have mentioned that you go across all age ranges and looking for like what you're looking for differences depending on the age range. Do you have a specific focus or taste MG versus YA versus adult versus picture book? I mean, the trends in those areas are all different. So definitely I'm always keeping in mind what's selling well, what editors have told me they're looking for, all of that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. Bottom line, it always comes down to the writing. The line by line writing is super, super important to me. If I can't get into the story that I'm reading, then it's not something that is something I can get past. Whether I'm working on something graphic or whether I'm working on a picture book, it doesn't really matter. I have to find the line level writing super, super compelling. Sometimes writers find that really discouraging feedback, but I also find that sometimes people don't value that enough in their queries and in their work. They really think a lot about the concept and the genre and all of that kind of stuff. But ultimately, craft is so important. So really focusing on whatever your style is, whether it's light and fluffy. I represent Mm -hmm. rom-com writers that they're not writing literary fiction for sure, but 
there's something about the sensibility that makes me feel like I'm listening to a friend or that really voicey YA confessional angsty mm-hmm. teen. And honestly, the one that I find the hardest is middle grade. I think people underestimate middle grade authors. They have a superpower that I think some authors don't, where somehow they're able to tell really complex stories in a very compact package. But the tone is really, really hard to nail because mm-hmm. you're still writing for a pretty young reader yeah. and they have to find it relatable. But the minute you start to sound patronizing, forget it. It has to be accessible, but no seven-year-old or eight-year-old feels like they want to be talked down to. That is an instant turnoff. Getting that tone where it's relatable to such a young reader without sounding like a teacher or a parent or an adult, (laughs) like it really has to sound genuine and authentic and have a certain appeal to draw reader in. Like that's really, really hard to do. I'm always looking for that line level writing. I tend to do less speculative in young adults overall, I would say, just because I find that especially in that category, the genres are very distinct. The editors are looking for very clear, this is a rom-com, this is a sci-fi book. There are certain genres that some editors won't touch and there are certain genres that do really, really well. Like rom-com is flying right now in YA. It's really having a moment. Whereas like I've had so many editors say, I love reading sci-fi, but my publisher, it doesn't sell. We're not taking it at all. So regardless of what I like or what I like to read, I very rarely consider a sci-fi proposal because it's just tough. It would have to be something really, really special for me to want to dive into something like that. In picture books, I really like identity to play a role in the story, but ultimately the book really has to appeal to a child on a shelf. I'm always looking for something a little bit different in that category than I am for say adult or something like that because you also have to be able to picture how it'll translate into visual storytelling with an illustrator. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other consideration that a lot of books, obviously, if they're meant to be prose, won't have. So I think it is different when I'm looking across different age categories, but there's always sort of sensibility in the writing that I'm looking for that's the same no matter what. That fit with the author is important to me no matter what, because yeah. even though we work a little bit differently, your goals have to be compatible. If people really don't like editorial feedback, I'm really not the <laughs> agent for them. So there are certain things like that that you know, if your process really doesn't involve anyone else, then it's tough for me to work with because mm-hmm. I do tend to be pretty involved with people. I want to turn back real quick to the, the political aspects that you've mentioned. I know like, that you specialize a lot in hashtag own voices. And I'm wondering yeah. if first, if you can just explain to listeners what hashtag own voices is and the type of stories they are. And then also just kind of discussing what you're looking for specifically with those stories and how readers can support those stories. Totally. So it's a term that's become a little bit contentious to use, but I think the intent of the term is basically to describe books that are written from lived experience by Mm -hmm. people who have experiences that might not be mainstream, white, middle-class, heteronormative experiences. I said before the phrase that I like to use of underrepresented in publishing. I'm in my 30s now. I always think back to the 90s and what kinds of books you would see on the shelf back when I was a kid. There was sort of a homogeny to them that was very white, very middle-class relatable, even within adult books, but also across children's books. A lot of illustrations were very focused on white kids. There were very few depictions of kids who say use mobility or accessibility devices, things like that. I think we're making progress, but a lot of those stories were written in a way that if you ever saw anybody that wasn't very normative, it was often a plot device. (laughs) Whereas now I really think that we're at a stage in publishing now where people are ready to tell their own stories. So Mm -hmm. whether that means you are a disabled person and you're writing about disabled characters, Mm -hmm. or I represent a lot of authors that are on the LGBTQ2S plus 
spectrum, people who are queer or gender non-conforming or trans, and also lots of people who have lived with chronic illness or with disability. Those things I tend to represent more because they're within my own lived experience, but there's so much space for more stories from BIPOC authors. I'm always asking for books from fat authors, from people who have worked in sex work. I think something that we don't talk about enough is stories by people who grew up in poverty that reflect that experience. A lot of books, even today that are written about kids that have grown up in the foster care system or who have grown up without a lot of money. A lot of those are written by people who have lived very middle-class lives. And I mean, there are some structural reasons for that too. It's very difficult sometimes for people from those backgrounds to have the luxury of time and access to this industry. Mm -hmm. There's lots of reasons for that, but those are the stories that I like to represent the most. When my authors are writing characters who say fit into those identity brackets, but aren't things that they have lived themselves. We work really, really carefully to make sure that that's done as responsibly as possible. So we use a lot of sensitivity readers. We use compensated cultural consultants. Our editors are usually really good at making sure that there are lots of sensitivity and secondary readers to make sure that we get good feedback. Because yeah, I like the books that I work on in a perfect world to reflect the diversity of the world around them. So as much as possible, I think we aim for that. As readers, seeking out those books is so important. <laughs> sometimes they're hard to find. And I think that as a reader, it can be especially challenging because sometimes they're just not written for you. That doesn't mean that you won't get something out of reading it, but it might be a different experience than right. if you're a part of the target audience of the book. The book that I always talk about when I talk about this is uh, Angie Thomas. She's obviously super, super well-known for The Hate You Give, which I yeah. loved like everybody else on the face of the planet loved. But when I went to read her second book on the come up, I actually like super struggled with that. Like I I'm white. I grew up in Newfoundland, as you mentioned. Even today, Newfoundland is a very majority white place. Mm -hmm. But especially back in the 90s when I was growing up, you could probably have counted the number of people who were of color on mm -hmm. one hand in my school growing up. And so this book that's about kids and rap culture and mm -hmm. low income neighborhoods. I grew up in a low income neighborhood in Newfoundland, but everybody looked like me. It wasn't the same as growing up in America where there's lots of diversity, especially in low income neighborhoods in some places. I started reading that book and there were things that I literally had to Google because I was like, what does this mean? The slang, the, she uses a lot of African-American vernacular English in her writing, which is like super awesome. And also for somebody who grew up without that kind of influence at all, it was like very difficult to understand. Once I did the work to get there, that's become one of my favorite books. I love it. But it's not one that I could sit down and just pick up and read because it wasn't written for me. It was written mm -hmm. for kids who grew up experiencing that kind of stuff. And it was also written for a young audience that I'm not part of anymore. I think especially as an agent, I'm always really careful to approach my queries knowing that whatever baggage I have as a person who grew up without a lot of diversity around me, and also as someone who's still a white settler, there are going to be things that in the books I'm not qualified to edit. I try to be really honest with my authors about those things and about the approaches they take in their work. I have a few authors that are heavily influenced by cultural backgrounds that I know very little about. And so I really defer to them and to their expertise on that front. If there's something that I don't understand in the book, I usually let them know because sometimes that can be helpful in terms of accessibility down the line. But I also don't expect them to make the book completely legible to me when I'm not the target audience for the book. It's complicated, but I think ultimately it leads to an ecosystem of books that's just way more interesting. I love everything you're saying. I find that like you and that I grew up white. So that's my experience. And I need to expand my perspective outside of that experience. And I found that stories are how you do it. And so it's important. You've mentioned before how sometimes there can be hurdles 
with publishing these certain types of stories, there tend to be some barriers. And I'm Nothing wondering, yes. <laughs> what, what are those barriers and why are they happening? One of the biggest barriers is lack of diversity within publishing itself as an industry. The number of editors who I know who aren't white middle-class demographic isn't huge. We definitely need to see more diversity in editing, in publishing, in the higher levels, especially of publishers. Also in agencies, we are trying to do our best within agencies, but there's systemic barriers to entering the industry at all. There's a handful of BIPOC agents who I know in Canada who are doing really, really well, but I don't think I know any other agents, at least in Canada, who have disabilities. If they do, there's no reason to be necessarily, but they're, they don't talk about them publicly necessarily. Mm -hmm. There are very few of us. And also, like, as far as I know, I do know a handful of trans agents across North America, but as far as I know, I'm the only one in Canada. And that's just silly. Like, you know, there's within, especially as you get higher and higher into the hierarchies of the publishing companies and stuff, that diversity tends to go way, way down. I think that there is a good conversation that's happening now about race in publishing, but in terms of diversity in publishing overall, I don't think we're there yet. Right. <laughs> you know, right. I'd like to think that we're making some progress talking about race, but the problem hasn't been solved. Also, it is really just one aspect of identity that we're talking about when we talk about race. And I think mm -hmm. that that's a struggle in and of itself. Definitely also, there are a lot more LGBTQ people who have become involved in publishing in the last, I would say, like 10, 15 years. And you can see that reflected in the books on the shelves. You know, there are a lot more, especially in romance, but there's a lot more queer content in books mm. across the board, I would say. But in terms of more intersectional aspects of identity, like trans people of color, for example, like that's when the numbers start to get really, really low. When you take into account which books are written by people where the author reflects the identities of their characters, that's also a much smaller number. So I think that in ways I like to think of myself as doing some important work and trying to promote great books. On the other hand, I also know that I'm a white person in this industry. So I'm also part of the problem in a lot of ways. And we have to be really creative about how we solve that, you know, and I think right. that some organizations and some companies are doing a great job of assessing the diversity of their company, assessing the diversity of the industry overall, and trying to think of concrete ways that we can actually change that, not just talk about it and make it more palatable on the surface or give it lip service so that it looks like we're doing a lot better, but actually changing it. And some companies are not. It definitely comes down to where consumers put their dollars. Books are often bought by publishers on the basis of comp titles and how they've performed in the past. And if there are no comp titles for a book, then it's very difficult to pitch it. It's easy for a publisher in a way to say like, well, there's no audience for that. Well, how do you know if there's an audience for it if you've never published a book that targets that audience? So it's really, really difficult. I think that romance has had an interesting ride, especially as a genre. One thing that they proved years ago was that there was a huge reading audience, especially in Black communities, but also like across BIPOC communities in general for romance. If people are going to read like 200 romance books a year, you're telling me that we can't do that in other genres too? Like, you're kidding me, you know? Right. People obviously read if the books are written for them and by them, but trying to make that happen and have people take the chance on books is much more difficult. And I found that particularly with my books that feature chronically ill characters, which I don't think is coincidental. I, I know very, very few people in publishing who are open about chronic illness or disability, especially in the U.S. because jobs are tied to health insurance there. That's tricky for American publishers. You're putting, in some cases, your employment at risk if you're open about those things. But I get a lot of really 
bizarre responses sometimes when I send out books with that kind of content compared to other things. There's a noticeable difference. So yeah, I think that we're making progress. I think that there are huge strides to be made, but I think that once we make them, there are so many ways to invite people into our ideas and to our stories that we're not open to yet. I think that the more and more that we're willing to be open to those ideas as an industry and take a chance on books that maybe don't look like they're going to sell right off the top, we would be proven wrong. And I think that we would reach a lot more readers and a lot of audiences that we're alienating right now. <laughs> yeah, so. I mean, you might be reaching people who don't like reading for that reason. And all of a sudden, exactly. they start to like to read because they yeah. get themselves in the books, you know? Absolutely. Right now, it's really, really difficult. I was having this conversation with one of my authors the other day. We both come from places where there are very few books that I think reflect Newfoundland culture in an authentic mm -hmm. way mm -hmm. and not sort of a stereotyped way. And he was from the prairies and was sort of saying the same thing. There's so many stereotypes about the flyover states and things like that. Like people don't read, people don't write, people aren't educated. Like, well, if every single book you pick up makes you feel alienated, you're not going to read. And if you're not reading, you're not going to grow up to write those stories. But right. that doesn't mean the stories aren't there. That doesn't mean the audiences aren't hungry for them. It means that we're actively telling them this is not for you. Creating an isolated society instead of a unified one. A hundred percent. Something I always try to do in my editorial is to like as much as I'm capable from my limited perspective, look for things that could be alienating to any reader and mm -hmm. try and work to make the book as welcoming as possible. You know, a story mm -hmm. doesn't have to be about one specific type of person, but we don't want to make those people feel like they're not welcome in that story. I think trying to work toward being as welcoming and inclusive as possible in all of the books that we create, it's difficult work, but it makes it so much more worth it in the end. And I think it really pushes our creativity too. I have so many authors that come back being like, oh, well, I have to use that word because there's no other word for it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Have you read your writing? I know you can come up with another word. <laughs> Work around yeah. it, my friend. Yeah, yeah. And we always get there. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think it really makes people stretch the limits of what they think they're able to do as well as authors. And I think that's really cool and exciting. Do you see that with your authors that you work with when they overcome some of those things that they think that they can't do it and they do it? Are those the books that they're even more proud of and satisfied about? I think so. And they're yeah. the ones that are received better too, you yeah. know? The the other thing is that I always tell people, maybe this doesn't seem like it's going to alienate someone to you, but you have no idea. I send it off to an editor. Sure. I know that that editor might look at it, but also the publicists are going to look at it. The marketing team is going to look at it. Their assistants are going to look at it. Their interns are going to look at it. There's all kinds of people. I don't know who those people, nobody does. There's no way for me to climb in my email inbox and be like, okay, who are the 30 people who are working with you today? If you want your book to be acquired, you don't want any of those people to pick it up and feel bad about it because they're going to tell the editor right off the bat there's this problem and then you're starting from a point of okay there's work to do on this book the ideal is that you start from a place of the editor is excited mm -hmm. about that book not mm -hmm. trying to already tally the risk calculation in their head you know yeah yeah so i think ultimately it benefits everybody if you're able to do that work up front this is great this is really important information that i think you're giving to the listeners <laughs> it's great when these books that are about hashtag own voices are written by mm -hmm. someone who is representative of what they're experiencing. So yeah, absolutely. Then you've mentioned there are writers who might not necessarily be that and they want to write about these stories. And it's really important to have things like sensitivity readers and really being open to feedback and change. Jody Pico wrote Small Great Things. She talked about how she wanted to write with a Black woman as the protagonist and she right. stopped writing that book because she realized that she was not the right writer for it. And then she started writing Small Great Things. But the reason why Small Great Things worked was because of all of these sensitivity readers and genuinely taking that feedback, but also because she wrote it for white women or white people in the sense of like, okay, 
there are some things that we're missing when writers are wanting to write these stories, but they're not from that experience. Should they go forward and try to do that? Or is it better to try to write from their own experience? So the one thing I always tell people just based on my own experiences, and this obviously won't speak, everybody would have a different answer to this, I think. Mm -hmm. But from my own experiences with people within the publishing community, I think it's ideal if you don't write a point of view character that you don't have any identity kind of experiences in common with. In part, it's because it's one thing if you're Jodi Pico, you know, and you've been writing for how long has Jodi Pico been writing? How many bestsellers does she have to her name? You know, yeah. like she's got some real credentials and she's also got access to resources that a lot of authors don't have. Mm -hmm. Like sensitivity readers are expensive. You have to compensate people fairly for their work. And mm -hmm. even if you're doing a labor exchange with them, you're probably going to owe them some serious labor in mm -hmm. exchange for them giving you some feedback that's pretty unique. Not everybody can give you that feedback. If you're going to ask that kind of emotional and intellectual labor of somebody, regardless of what the kind of cost is on paper, the money cost, you're probably going to have to do some serious work in exchange for that. Not everybody can afford that. And also not everybody has the skill to be able to do it well. That's okay. You don't have to be the best writer you're ever going to be when you're writing your first or second book. If you go back and look at like Jodi Pico's website, scroll through how many titles she's written and right. come back to me when you've written that many. And I think people really get hung up on themselves, not they're afraid to say, I'm not good enough at this yet to do that. You might have an amazing idea, but maybe you're just not ready to write that as an mm -hmm. author. And that's all right. Mm -hmm. Give yourself a couple of years, do some things that are within your capacity and you'll get there. Absolutely. It mm -hmm. doesn't mean that that idea is lost. It just means that you need some practice and some growth and sometimes life experience and networking and mm -hmm. to be able to have the money to pay for three or four consultations or sensitivity readers. All of those things come into play. For me, I always tell people that if you can have side characters, like meaningful side characters and settings and experiences within your book that reflect that the world is not an all-white, able-bodied, middle-class world. There are lots of ways to do that that aren't writing from a point of view that mm -hmm. is not your own or that might be appropriative. In some ways, that's even harder to do, to think of ways that you can integrate those experiences meaningfully without actually going for, okay, well, I, this is a story about a Black woman, so I'm going to write from the point of view of a Black woman. Can you tell that same story from a point of view that's your own and have right. it hit the same? Are you actually capable of that? It's really, really tough. And I think that there are some really simple things and also more difficult things. I often tell people when you're showing what food your characters are eating in your book, have you integrated any food that's not white people food? Are they always eating sandwiches or do they occasionally grab a burrito now and then? You know, right. there are such easy, basic ways that you can bring in aspects of the world that aren't as sensitive and as um, complex as writing from a point of view that's not your own. And so I think that anything, it's going to be easiest if you start with those baby steps and build from there. When people are ready for that kind of thing, I think they know or if you're doing three points of view and one of them is going to be something you're going to need a lot of research and a lot of consultation on, then I think you'll get there. But it's a much more difficult project than writing from a starting point that's more natural or, or comes more easily to you. Mm -hmm. Everything that you're saying, that's just, <laughs> it's really important for people to take to heart. And another thing that I think is really important personally about making sure that these stories, it's important to buy those books because that puts money Always. in those pockets. That's a good thing too. And buy them new, buy them from when you can, buy them in hardcover. People make yeah. more money off of those sorts of things. And it's complicated. And I know that books are a luxury purchase for a lot of people. Even taking them out of the library or requesting them at your library though, yeah. all of that has an impact. Whatever you can do to support books that are by diverse creators, I think mm -hmm. that that's really important. Awesome. 
Well, Emmy, you are a wealth of knowledge and I am so excited to share everything you said with the listeners. At the end of every podcast, I do like to do what I call lightning three. So basically I ask you three questions that you answer in one sentence or- Oh, this is so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) Just a nice one, two, three punch at the end. If you're ready, I'll ask you. So ready. (laughs) Yeah, right. Question one is what makes you different as a literary agent from everyone else? Oh my gosh. (laughs) One sentence, if you can do it. (laughs) The easy go-to is I hate the phone. (laughs) I do a lot of my communicating by email. (laughs) If that's not your jam, don't query me because that's never going to (laughs) change. And that's great to know because the way people communicate is so intricate in the relationship, right? (laughs) Yeah. Question number two, if you could have sold and represented any book in publishing, what would it be and why? Oh my gosh. The one that comes to mind right off the top of my head is Bunny by Mona Awad. When I read that Mm -hmm. book, I was like, I would have loved to have gotten my hands dirty with this. It is so unexpected and has themes that are so relatable approached in some of the most unique ways. And it's also just really gross. And I love that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's great. And question number three for you. Do you prefer standalone books or standalones with series potential? Or do you prefer? Okay. And then, yeah, as a reader and as an agent, I do. I think there's a particular skill in telling an entire narrative arc in one package. And like, I mean, not that I don't ever read series, not that I don't ever represent series, but when people can do that and have it really be effective, I -hmm. love it. Awesome. Well, look at you. You did it in one sentence or less. That's <laughs> Thank great. you. I, I tried. I don't I, know if I, I had this work within yeah. a sentence. But. You got it. You went confidently and got it out there. <laughs> yeah. Thank well, you. Well, Emmy, thank you so much for joining me today. I know that listeners are going to get my so pleasure. much out of this conversation. I just really enjoyed talking to you and I can't thank wait you to so share. Much. Thank you. I hope that you have a great rest of your day. It's honestly, we're in lockdown right now. So oh, being I able know. to have like a nice conversation with somebody who's not my cat. Like, I mean, I love talking to my cats, but I think I exhaust them with book talk now and then. So it's nice to have an outlet. Hey, if you ever need conversation, I'm here for you. So thank you so much. I really look forward to listening to your podcast. I think it's a really cool concept. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation on Lit Match. You can find Emmy's manuscript wish list, where to find them, and the books highlighted in this episode in the show notes. If you liked listening to my conversation with Emmy, and would like to hear more episodes with other literary agents, please make sure to pass the show on and write a review. This helps me reach more writers who are ready to query agents who want to help with the research process or want to learn more about the writing craft. If you have any questions or recommendations for LitMatch, please email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com and I'll do my best to answer you. I hope you'll join me for next week with more episodes of LitMatch. In the meantime, keep writing. I genuinely can't wait to hear when you sign with the best literary agent for your business and writing career and celebrate your book when it comes out.